Hello, my name's Nardine. I usually attend the 1045 sermon. Today's reading comes from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and then out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience careful in, and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will, put up, will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Hi everyone, it's great to be with you. If I haven't met you personally, my name is Pete Stacey. And today we come to the end of our series in 1 Timothy. And as you heard in the reading, it addresses the issue of wealth, which we looked at a little bit last week as well. I read an article this week about a bloke who's been the pastor of a relatively small suburban church in America for nearly five decades. Not exactly the path to great wealth. But in 1992, he wrote a book called The Five Love Languages. His name is Gary Chapman. Sales of his book took off and now nearly 30 years later, The Five Love Languages has been in the New York Times bestseller list for over 25 years. In fact, this year, 2021, it's been the best-selling Christian book almost every month. It's extraordinary. A conservative estimate of his annual profits is around US $1.5 million. Imagine that. What would you do with $1.5 million every year for the rest of your life? You know, over the years, success and popularity has been the undoing of many great men and women of God. But Gary's remained quite a humble man, committed to loving God and serving people. And as for the money, Gary doesn't even take a salary from all his writing or speaking or conferences. All those earnings go into a non-profit organisation he started in the early 80s that funds Christian colleges and helps young counsellors get started uh, in their ministry of helping others. Gary said, our intention is to give it all away. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Or friends, as people to whom God has given much, Let's ask for great clarity and great conviction 
as we open his word today. Let's pray. Dear Father, you're so good and generous to us. You've given us life and filled it with so many good things. You've given us eternal life at the cost of your own dear son. You've blessed us with more than we need, certainly enough to give away. So please change us to be more like you, with hearts full of goodness and generosity as we see the physical and spiritual needs of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was never particularly good at grammar. I even spelt the word incorrectly on the front of my year two exercise book. But I understood verbs. They're doing words. Listen for the verbs in the start of today's passage. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Did you catch them all? There's four verbs. Flee, pursue, fight and take hold. The Christian life is not passive, it's active. It's full of verbs of doing things. Not to earn God's love, but in response and gratitude to what he has done for us. Today's passage flows straight out of where we finished last week in verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So here in verse 11, Paul says, flee the love of money. Flee the temptation to use ministry as a platform for financial gain. And, you know, one of the best ways to flee any kind of temptation is by replacing it with godly pursuits. Don't just run from evil, run to what is good. And Paul gives us some clear goals to pursue. Look what he says. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. It's a list of virtues, similar to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Friends, these are qualities that God grows by his Spirit in our hearts as we seek him. And what Paul is saying here is this. Growing in godly character because we love God is the greatest antidote to loving money or any other kind of idol for that matter. Next, we're told to fight the good fight of faith. To follow Jesus in a world that is against him, it's a battle, isn't it? You know, the New Testament identifies three specific battlefronts. Sin, the world, and the devil. And here, Paul says to Timothy, and to all who want to follow Jesus, fight the good fight of faith. 35 years ago, I went to a big Christian camp and in the afternoon session, you know, some people are sleeping in their tents and uh, there are lots of electives to choose from that. And one speaker knew he needed a really catchy title to attract the crowds. So he called his talk, Three Weapons the Devil Can't Beat and Christians Don't Use. And guess what? Plenty of people turned up and uh, you wouldn't guess what he talked about. Daily Bible reading, regular prayer and intentional fellowship. It's like a solid three-legged stool that is not easily knocked over. That's a great way to build a solid faith 
as we follow Jesus. Yeah, and I can't wait for the fellowship, but, you know, meeting together again soon. Yeah? Church is like our weekly boot camp. Can't wait for that. Uh, one thing that inspires courage in the battle is when we see other believers, older believers and leaders battling bravely and finishing well. Do you have people you look up to and model from? Timothy did. He had the Apostle Paul. And Paul's second letter to Timothy, about 10 years later, Paul was able to say this honestly. My departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. What an amazing thing to say. You know, in God's timing, we will all come to our own moment of departure. As you reflect honestly on your life, what do you want to be saying to those you leave behind? And Paul takes us to that eternal perspective in the next bit. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, let the reality of your eternal future, your eternal life, shape how you live and speak in this life now. And in the following verses, he gives some pretty good reasons why that's a great way to live. Have a look at what he says. God sees, so let us obey him. God gives us life, so let us live for him. Jesus is our example of courage in the face of the most intimidating opposition before Pilate. So let us be strengthened by his example and be courageous and not ashamed. Jesus will return, so let us be ready. And God is sovereign in his timing, so let's trust him and wait faithfully. And then as Paul's thoughts uh, focus on God, he just explodes in this spontaneous, heartfelt praise. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. God alone is God, so let us praise him with every fibre of our being. One bloke who set out to do that was Martin Luther, the time of the Reformation 500 years ago. He said there's three conversions in the Christian life, the conversion of the mind, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the wallet. Paul's mentioned money before. But it's not surprising he returns to it once more here near the end. Because our attitude to money and wealth has such a significant impact on the overall health of our faith. Firstly, Paul highlights two dangers to avoid. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. In other words, not to act as though the wealth God has given us somehow makes us better than others, you know, playing the comparison game to boost our ego. And secondly, not to find our sense of security or satisfaction in wealth. You know, God can take it away in a moment and sometimes does to bring us back to himself. And then Paul replaces the two dangers with two goals but to put their hope in God, 
who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's an astonishing phrase, isn't it? Command them to do good, he says, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Hope in God, not money. And secondly, be rich in good deeds and generosity instead of rich in arrogance. You know, when we find our security and our satisfaction in God alone, money becomes a delightful tool for bringing glory to him, enjoying what he's blessed us with and using it to bless others and build his kingdom. Now, that really is living. That's facing this life with our hearts and our mind ready for eternity. It's it's an adventure of faith. And that's exactly where Paul takes us next. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And friends, as I was reading that article about Gary Chapman, that's what I see him doing. You know, he's 83 and next weekend he's actually officially retiring from public ministry. I just find that amazing. Um, But, you know, he'll serve God till his final breath. And I really admire and feel inspired by people like that. But sometimes I I also notice something very sad going on in my own heart. I start to make excuses for myself for why I don't need to obey quite the same way they might. You know, he's got more money than me. or He can afford to be generous and, you know, so on and so on. The, The love of money, it's so sneaky, isn't it? So before we wrap up, I want to explore what generosity might look like for each one of us. Then we can not only flee the sinful options, but we can have lots of good and godly ideas to prayerfully consider and make some clear goals that will help us set our hearts and our habits on our eternal home. The first idea, straight from the Old Testament, is the idea of tithing, giving 10% of all that God has given to us back to him for the use of Uh, in extending the gospel. Now, of course, the Old Testament tithe was before tax too, so there's a challenge. Um, But can I just say, most people could still give well above 10% and still live a relatively comfortable life. Second idea is giving to a particular project or need over and above the tithe. Uh, Some people call this offerings, yeah, tithes and offerings. Um, This is when we feel moved by the needs of others and give to specific things like drought relief or bushfire appeals or some humanitarian crisis somewhere in the world and so many other good causes. Thirdly, giving to mission. We can't all be missionaries in other parts of the world, but we can pray and we can care and keep in touch and we can give financially to support the work that others are doing for Jesus. You know, some people include this in the kind of offerings category, but I want to encourage us to consider making this a regular line item in our personal budget so that our missionaries are supported consistently, not just when we have surplus. Fourthly, make a will. You know, your own funeral, if you plan it, is the last public opportunity you have to share the gospel with family and friends, or to give shape to it anyway. (laughs) And your will, if you make one, is the last opportunity to make sure your wealth promotes the gospel. 
I had fun doing this myself recently, thinking about all the possibilities. Now, you want to care for your family, but you can also invest Christian education, the Bible Society, and mission work, and there's so many possibilities. Uh, of course, that's not going to impact me. I'll be with the Lord. But it could make a good impact for the gospel. And um, while we're on that, make sure you tell your family what you've done and why. Yeah, it'll actually have a profound impact on them and there'll be no rude surprises for them when you die. It's just an act of love and kindness. Lastly, teach generosity to the next generation. Teach and model godliness by being rich in good deeds and generous with all God has blessed us with. We used to give our kids a coin for the church offering at a young age so they'd feel like uh, giving something each week was just the normal thing to do. Uh, look, there's some ideas uh, to, to think about. How do we actually make all, all those things happen? A lifestyle of good deeds and generosity does not start when we have a change of income. It starts when we have a change of heart. So pray and act and begin this adventure of faith. Make a new life budget. Make a new life budget based on eternal goals, based on benefiting others and building God's kingdom above my needs, based on personal gratitude, not personal gain. And imagine the gospel ministry that we could do as a church combined, you know, locally, nationally, globally, if we all play our part. Not out of a sense of duty, but out of generous love for God and a desire to see people come to know Jesus and be certain of their salvation. The good deeds and generosity, they're an expression of our trust in our good and generous God. How we manage our money really is an adventure of faith. And in the Zoom chat, I'll be sharing some of my adventure, some of the challenges and some of the funny moments too from my own journey over the years. Lastly, Paul says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. We don't know exactly what Paul was referring to here, but looking at the whole letter, two things come to mind. Firstly, the people of Ephesus themselves had been entrusted to his care. He was to shepherd them. And secondly, the gospel message itself that he was to teach and to guard and to equip others to faithfully teach as well. And friends, that brings us to the end of the letter of 1 Timothy. Can I encourage you in the coming week to look back over the book as a whole and to pick at least one thing that you found particularly helpful, encouraging or perhaps challenging. Write it down. Reflect on why it's significant for you. And ask God to help you continue to learn and grow in that area of your faith journey. If you were to pick the issue of money that we've explored today and last week, let me close by returning to what I've read about Gary Chapman this week. When asked about his devotional life, his consistent prayer request to people is that God would give him strength and energy to continue. Let me quote from the article itself. Gary told me a story about a trip to Crewe, Virginia, 
where he stopped to visit the grave of beloved missionary Lottie Moon. Um, she was a missionary in China for over 40 years and courageous and gifted woman. Uh, it took me a while to find it, he says, and I expected a pretty nice grave. But I got there, and it was a little stone thing. And all it said was Lottie Moon, and it gave her birth date and death date. And then it said, faithful unto death. And I wept. And I said, God, that is what I want, to be faithful unto death. Dear friends, may God plant that prayer deep in our hearts. Not just in the way we manage our finances, but in every area of our lives. And may he give us the grace to trust him and play our part in answering that prayer as well. So in the words of Paul, let me finish with this. Grace be with you all. Amen. Amen.